Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast of board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is episode 252, BGA, Games of the Decade. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. All right, Anthony, we are not just going our normal way back. We are going back a decade for this upcoming feature review. Yeah, no, it's crazy. I know, like, everybody's doing it, so we're obviously not <laughs> redesigning the wheel here. But we've obviously seen it all out there, but having seen it and all the different podcasts and mediums and, and fellow board game people doing this, thought it'd be pretty fun just to kind of run through the last 10 years or so and discuss the games that we think are the most important and best of those years. So we're giving into uh, peer pressure is what you're saying. Yeah, isn't that what podcasts are? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> what do you want to hear from us? <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's the the general, you know, medium of, of of this of this thing that we do, so to speak. Which is, hey, what do people want to listen to, and let's talk about it for this week. So, yes, for this week's episode, we will, in fact, be talking about the games of the decade, going way back to two thousand and ten, and finding out revisiting and just generally picking out the best of the decade and talking about each of those particular years. So if you've been around for those years, it'll be a nostalgic drive back. And if you haven't been around, maybe these games will be a light to kind of track these things down and get those things to the table because the board gaming industry is moving so very quickly, new games all the time, so little shelf space, so few game stores out there that the older games really do not get the attention they deserve, and they're fantastic. Yeah, so we it's definitely crazy, care. man. Like The number of games that we just skip over and talk about the new stuff. And then when I was doing this list, I was like, I think my favorite year is not a recent year. So <laughs> we'll talk about that too. Yeah, so there's a lot of gaming goodness out there, but if you would like to be part of the peer pressure and get Anthony and I to do really fun and yet crazy things on the podcast, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. Our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com, has an amazing amount of content on there, not to mention the podcast and, of course, our sister podcast, Every Night is Game Night with Jason and Anthony, but also our YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Anthony has pretty much placed us everywhere that you could possibly imagine. You know, if you go down to the seashore and you find a seashell and you put up to your ear, we're probably in there, too, so... Please rate, review, send us emails, send us comments. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if we're in your area, we'd love to play a game with you. All right, Anthony. So that's what we're hoping that comes out from our listeners. But let's get into what we really need for them upcoming. We have a little bit of an award show, don't we? We do. Yeah, this is kind of the precursor, the prologue, if you will. Uh, Next week, we're going to do 2019's best games. So I've heard of that year. Yeah, it's the... It, maybe it's recent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the best of the decade, we're not actually going to include 2019 because it's happening right now. And we want to kind of do a bigger retrospective of the whole year, which we do at the end of every year. And so this year we did things a little differently. We have roughly the same categories as last year, 
So we're going to talk about best family games, heavy strategy games, overlooked games, you know, 2.0 updates, and then the game of the year, with a couple of fun ones thrown in there as well. But then we also threw a poll up on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, which you can find there, or you can find on the Facebook page. And we ask you to help us narrow down the list of nominees. So each of these categories, we have anywhere between seven and 15 games that we've listed out that we feel fit the category and either one of us really likes it or we've been recommended by other gamers and listeners. And so we want you to hop on there and vote for which ones you think are the best in those categories. And then I'm going to take those lists, narrow it down to five, maybe 10 for the game of the year. And that's what we're going to use to discuss next week. So you have a few more days to do that. And so far, 50 or so people have done so. We really appreciate it. Hoping to get, you know, 100 or so votes on there to help us make sure we have the best possible list of nominees. And then we'll uh, we'll announce our game next week. All right. So if you want to keep in contact with us and let us know, please let us know. Reach out to us and join up and especially vote for this upcoming contest. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, if you would like to be part of the ongoing flashbacks that we're having currently as we go over the latest and greatest in board gaming, patreon.com slash bga is a way to support the podcast and listen to us go back we do episodes every month and currently what we're doing is flashback episodes to previous years where we talk about previous games and embarrass ourselves a little bit as far as how those episodes went what games are still great to play and what games we no longer play anymore so definitely check all that fun stuff out all right, Anthony, that's not everything that we have from our listeners. We still have some great content here. What's our question of the week? All right, question of the week this week. Do you do a 10 by 10 challenge or anything similar? If you do, how did you perform in 2019? And what are your plans for 2020? So this is a thing a lot of people talk about. You see people post about it on Facebook and BGG and Reddit and make other people feel bad with their pictures of having completed it. But realistically, I wanted to know how many people actually try this and how many actually succeed at it, because <laughs> I've tried it several times and never actually completed it myself. And I don't know if I'm an outlier because you and I have a podcast and we play. <laughs> I play something like two to three hundred different types of games a year. I can't play 10 of anything, but it, it was an interesting response. So we had Chris jumped in. He said it was going great, uh, but he said some personal life disruptions and consistent gaming groups and lost his original 10 by 10. He he showed where he thinks he's at roughly, and it's about halfway through it. So I just think based on a lot of the photos that people shared, it tends to be where people end up. Tom mentions having four gaming goals in 2019. He wanted to play games with 100 different people, and then he had a five by five and 10 popular games he'd never played before he wanted to go through. And he specifically said that he has 326 plays of 122 different games with 101 different people, did not quite complete the 5x5, five five, but he's doing pretty good on the rest of his goals. So very impressive. Gary mentions him and his wife set out to do a 10x10 10 10 and had a great first quarter. And then, as happens to all of us, some shiny new games came in and they've been completely derailed since. So they're considering doing a 5x5 five five this year and they really enjoy completing achievements, but the 10x10 10 10 became disheartening and kind of a chore. So, and that's what a few people kind of mentioned is that the 10 by 10, it's fun because it gets older games out of your collection and back to the table. But realistically, most people want to play new stuff. Like our buddy Dave says he would love to do something like this, but doesn't think it's possible with the groups he plays with because they're constantly bringing new games to the table. So I'm the guy bringing the new stuff to the table. So I know what this is like. <laughs> I, I've tried this two or three times. I don't think I'm going to set one up for next year because it's just another thing I don't accomplish. But it is, I understand the idea behind it and I appreciate it and I wish I could accomplish it, but such are the, such are the joys of trying to play all the new hotness that we can, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a worthy endeavor, but I always seem like since, and obviously it doesn't need to have hard and fast rules, so to speak, but it's one of those things where, yeah, I could put, I don't know, love letter down there and knock out 10 games in one night and maybe balance it out here and there but i think as you mentioned anthony it's a little bit strange for us because we try to obviously review the the latest in board gaming so it doesn't really allow us to play as many games as we really like to play in a row 
I, to be honest with you, I don't even know at this point what game could I consistently get to the table again and again and again that you know would add up to ten times. Not to mention ten times ten. It just seems like it's almost one of those situations where you're fit to fail unless it's a legacy game and you have to bang it out in order to finish the story. Yeah, there's like a handful of games this year that just the group in general got really into. But some of those we cheat. I don't know if it's cheating. I don't think it's really cheating. But like the Great Zimbabwe, for example, I've played that 10 times this year, but half of those were online. And sure. while that's a full game, it is something I play on my phone in between meetings and projects for work. So I'm like, well, if I could do that with all games, this wouldn't be so hard. But it's there's a limited number of games you can do that with. Yeah, I don't think the accomplishment reaches that level when it's like an, you know, an app game. Just because I'll knock out Seven Wonders Duel five or six times in a row, just because it only takes about five minutes when you're playing against the, the AI. But when you're playing with people, that I think that's the real accomplishment. You Not to mention, I, I think you have to kind of commit to it as a group. Maybe get 10 people if there is such a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you know people will drop out, people will not show up, and try to, as a game group, try to do a 10 by 10 individually really really difficult because everyone's got to be on board to get those games out but who knows so if you'd like to join us in our never-ending quest to get as much content as possible from you our listeners please check out our facebook twitter or social media we'd love to hear from you get some information and throw it up on the podcast all right anthony we are skipping past the acquisition disorders because that's going to be part of our feature view, but let's get on to the games that we got to the table this week. Let's talk about our at the tables. All right. This is a big one um, in terms of size, length, all those things. It is Crystal Palace. Ooh. Yeah, this is one of a trio of brand new releases from Capstone, in addition to Bus, which is a re-release that they came out with over the fall. And it's probably the, like the least visible one. It's from a brand new designer, Christian Lauber. And it's a decently big, heavy box. And mechanically, there's a lot going on. So this is the one I hear the least about. But it's actually the one I got to the table first of the trio of Maracaibo, Cooper Island, and this one, Crystal Palace. So I've had a chance to play it a couple times. The thing about this game, uh, and I'll just start with like the basic core mechanic, because that's what makes it unique, is that you have a set number of dice that are your workers, but you will never, ever roll them. Instead, at the beginning of every round, you will secretly decide what their values are, and then you will pay one coin for every pip on those dice. So if you bid 15 across all four of your dice, you're paying 15 bucks. If you are the highest bidder, you go first. If you're the second highest bidder, it doesn't matter because then it's going to go in turn order around the table. So it's like this weird psychological element to the game where you're trying to outbid other people but not so much that you waste all your money and end up with dice that are overpowered for the actions you're going to take. If you're the lowest bidder, you get like a tiny little compensation, like a, a little bonus point you can use for free actions later. It's not great, but it's something. Um, but that's the most important part of the game because I feel like it took the longest for people to wrap their heads around, but also was the most frustrating and frequently was the part that you just got kicked the most because... <laughs> Bidding what you feel like is a lot and coming in like one or two pips behind someone else and then going last because the person who outbid you is on your left sucks. And that's the kind of game this is. That's what you're in for. So if that sounds fun where you can just kind of needle each other and mess with each other in bidding, keep listening. If that's like, oh my gosh, I would hate that. I don't know that the rest of this is going to make up for that because <laughs> it was a bit frustrating at times. So you do all that, right? And then there are a whole bunch of actions that you can take. And the way the actions work is you are placing dice in one of two to five dice placement spots on each of, I think, eight different boards. And each of these spaces corresponds to the action that you want to take. But frequently, there's more available spots than there are actual action spots. So there might be five locations that you can put dice, but only four people can take that action. So... For example, this is how that would work. You might put a four up there, and then later, four other people put fives and sixes, and now you don't get to take that action because you have the lowest die on that action space. So you have to be careful about where you place your dice because people can come in and outbid you. So again, it's kind of that action mechanic idea. Um, reminded me a little bit of like Three Kingdoms Redux in terms of 
you might throw your best stuff out there and then someone else has something slightly better and you just wasted your best stuff. So be really careful about that. You place all your dice out, then you move them down, see who gets to take actions and who doesn't. Um, there are some bonuses, there are some extra costs associated. You pay all that. Then you take the actions. Um, the actions are a whole variety of things, but it comes down to a few basics. You are trying to gather different um, patents to build prototypes. You're trying to gather different benefactors, um, special people. This game takes place in the World's Fair of 1851 uh, in England, where the Crystal Palace was built. And there are some historical characters there. There are some completely made up characters like Phineas Fogg from around the world in 80 days. Why not, right? And these different characters and cards, they all score points and do things, but they can also cross over. So they each have like each benefactor inventor will have different inventions maybe they, they've done. If you get those cards and build them, then you get bonus points for doing that. When you get the benefactor cards, you have to pay for them immediately. The prototypes, you pay for them later when you can afford it. The cool thing about those, or not so cool, depending on how you think about it, is that they have a benefit at the bottom, but also something that hurts. You can choose to take the benefit and the um, penalty, or you can give the benefit and the penalty to someone else at the table. Again, this sucks. <laughs> Like in a good way, if you like this kind of game, but it can be brutal. The money in this game is really, really tight. If you run to the end of your money, you have to take a loan and the loans are guaranteed negative five points. Even if you pay them back, they're like negative eight to negative 10. If you don't pay them back, you pay them back, they go down to negative five. So if somebody's really low on cash and you have a prototype that would cost them more money than they have, they have to take a loan to pay for it. So a little bit of take that, but at the same time, people can plan for it and they should plan for it. Make sure they don't run that low on money. Um, we all failed at that, but it's something to keep in mind. Uh, you do all that stuff. You pay your salaries for whatever characters you have. They each cost a certain amount of money. Uh, there are a few other types of actions you can take on the board. There's like assistant actions. There's ways to get more dice. There's a way to upgrade certain things that you're doing. There's ways to decrease how much you're paying salaries. All sorts of little stuff that you'd expect in a more advanced worker placement game. Uh, you will then be able to convert your patents into prototypes, get some income. There's events that are going to run. And then there's a separate buzz track that you'll work your way up. And it's just kind of like a bonus track. Uh, think of like the Terra, Terra Mystica tracks or something. Uh, so all of that together creates what I found to be a relatively fun game. It It's really tight. It's kind of mean if you're not careful. There's a lot of interesting decisions to be made a limited number of resources and actions with which to do so. But it is fairly fiddly. Uh, you have all these little boards lining the table because they are different for each player count. So there are, all of them are separate. Every action is its own little board. There are several different tracks for like assistance and where you can go there for the buzz track, for your own personal board and the tracks on that. There are different ways to get dice, different ways to score points for every player. There's different ways to hurt each other. There's a lot to keep track of. And again, the money's really, really tight. The resources are really, really tight. So if you make a couple bad decisions or just don't realize what someone else is doing, or if you just bid poorly two or three times in a row, it's going to hurt. So it is a interesting game for the right group of people, for the wrong group of people, or for people you don't really know very well. I feel like this would not sit super well. I'm going to give it a play because I personally enjoyed it. But I think having played it a couple times now, seeing how other people react to it, knowing the different people in my group are just going to like, I don't know about this. I don't think it's going to hit the table very much. I can't really give it higher than like a soft play. I really, really wanted to like it more because I love the mechanic. I love the bidding aspects of it, but it just doesn't quite come together in a cohesive package that really works. That said, I think if you are in the type of group where this type of take that heavy duty at your throat, kind of like dominant species or 18xx style of worker placement game is good for you, you probably really like this. So it's worth checking out at least. Yeah, I do like the dominant species at your throat, the entire type type of game. This is a relatively heavy game for the mechanics that's employed here. That's not a bad thing. It's just a very different thing. As you mentioned, any time that you have a bidding game, 
there's always, especially initially, that that challenge about how much you're supposed to bid w- without really knowing the market. And obviously not knowing the players, because if you don't have a good group of players that are generally playing, let's say, tight, for example, and you just have that one random player who's just like, all the money on a thing, you're like, well, there goes the market. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think that's somewhat of a danger with playing bidding games. I, As you mentioned, trying to have the right group is always something that sticks in my craw a bit just because a game should be able to stand on its own regardless of the group that you're playing with. Like, the mechanics should be structurally sound. I'm hoping to get a chance to play this at some point. As you mentioned, it seems to be a painful experience, and that's what you typically want from a good Euro game. (laughs) That's the thing, yeah. Like, I played this, and I'm thinking, like, would Chris like this game? And honestly, I don't know. Like, it's really hard. Yeah, I've... At the same time, like, ooh, no, oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the mechanics are all really interesting. And, like, the way you choose how powerful your actions are going to be, I'm like, this yeah. is great. I love this. But then... I love that idea, yeah. A couple times, I'm like, oh, I bid a bunch, and now I'm out of money. But you bid more because you're insane, and now I go last. That's... Crap. Yeah, that's an issue. Yeah, yeah. that happens. You know, happens like, probably games. you should bid less. I should have bid less. That's fine. And now I know that because if I never run out of money by the end of the game, I'm going to be in a better position than the guy who just went crazy bidding. Maybe, hopefully. And that seems to be the one mechanic that people really get stuck on, which is the the bidding mechanic where people really beat themselves up or yell at other people like... Mm. You know, there's always that situation where there's a king, you know, kingmaker or you attack the wrong person or you so forth and so on. But bidding. Yeah, people people get a little tight (laughs) when it comes to bidding. All right. Well, let's talk about a game that I was able to get to the table. And one of the highlights and probably if you were looking for I wouldn't say the game of the show, because I think a lot of games out there kind of had the same amount of buzz, so to speak. But the game that got the most table time at the first look section, at least, was Marco Polo 2 in service of the con. And primarily because Marco Polo, the original Marco Polo, so to speak, had just garnered such gigantic praise, not just from the industry, but from also Anthony and myself. And a second version of this after the you know, their expansion that kind of expanded the first version was something that was kind of surprising that they would come out with a very similar, but in certain sections, just greatly expanded. I mean, in fact, if you were to put both boards together, you could see exactly what they did in the game. So let me talk a little bit about Marco Polo ever so briefly, if you haven't played it. Basically, Marco Polo was a worker placement game, and what was very unique about it was you were given a serious rule-breaking asymmetrical power. Everyone had one, so it was kind of weird. It was like, oh, ah, that's that that seems wrong. Oh, I got one too. <laughs> so, and they were very different. And the idea of the game was you were traveling around and you were stopping and dropping trade posts, which were going to give you an opportunity to gain resources and special powers. And you were traveling and you were picking up resources and you were completing contracts and you were trying to match certain gold cards. And that was pretty much it as a game. It's a a pretty phenomenal game with the only exception, I I guess, as far as a nitpick is concerned, was the small versus large resources were just like a hair bit bigger, which made things a little bit confusing. But it was a very tight game in money and in actions. And it was a dice placement game. So you rolled your dice, you placed your dice out there, and the dice pips determined a lot of what was going on. So a lot, a lot of fun. Now, this new version, as I mentioned earlier, what is so significantly interesting about the game is if you put the two boards together, you can see exactly what they did. So what did they exactly do? Well, the travel section that I guess initially or originally was in Marco Polo was probably about half to maybe a little bit less than half of the board. Well, now it's probably about two-thirds of the board. So if you weren't sure what was going to happen in travel, now you know. And that was the one thing with the original Marco Polo that was very difficult to do was travel because travel was expensive, travel was somewhat limited, and you typically had to place a lot of dice out there to travel any extent. And usually as you're traveling, you're paying money and camels and such, So, you know, it wasn't always the most prosperous way to win the game. 
and contracts had a big role in the game. But in this version, Marco Polo 2, you are traveling a lot more. So you are traveling throughout the board. Now, what's important about traveling here beyond the normal, hey, I got a special ability or hey, I picked up a particular resource is the fact that by dropping trading posts in certain areas, you will now be able to pick up contracts in that area. So whereas originally contracts were in this kind of like strange separate spot, now contracts are in certain cities. So only you could get one of those if you had a trading post there. So it kind of incentivizes the movement on the board. In addition to that, there's also going to be these symbols in each of the different cities. And those symbols will add up at the end of the game. So there is a little chart, I would say, the middle towards the bottom of the board. And depending on how many cities you dropped your trading post at, plus the bonuses that you'll be able to get throughout the game, especially the special contract bonuses by visiting certain cities, you'll be able to score a ridiculous number of points. I think I scored 43 points one game. It was pretty crazy. So the rest of the game kind of fits normally, so to speak. You are still completing contracts. As I mentioned, you're still completing goals. You still have camels and money and gold and all the same resources. You do have one additional resource in this game, and it's a bit of a wild resource. And typically what happens in the game a lot is as you're traveling around, you will have opportunities to pick up uh, additional resources on the bottom of the board. Now, if you've played the original game, the resources were set, and you, as you put a worker placement spot over there, you got the resources. Here, you could pick up the regular resources, or you could pay Jade to pick up an upgraded version of the resources. There's also a variable market. So on the bottom, you'll see there's a number of stacks of different resources. So you'll know what the new resource selection is going to be for the next round but also it mixes things up. So paying that jade will lead to different results each round. And that's basically going to be your turn market throughout the game. But otherwise you're picking up money, you're picking up camels, you're, there's a little spot where these two cards kind of you know swap out each round. That's kind of fun. So there's different things that will possibly happen in that particular area. As I mentioned, since you're going to be traveling a lot more, not just because the board is bigger for that, but also travel is a lot cheaper and a lot easier, not to mention the rule-breaking characters that come into play that allow for asymmetrical gameplay. They're mostly geared towards travel, so things are a lot easier. So maybe you won't have to pay resources, or you could skip over a city but drop a trading post nonetheless. So this game primarily plays like a standard Marco Polo worker placement game, placing the dice out there, placing your workers, completing contracts, and traveling across the board. Nothing radically different here. There's different contract completion, so to speak. And as I mentioned, there is that big scoring opportunity by you know getting the right cities. And that's pretty much it. I really very much enjoyed Marco Polo 2. It was a nice way to revisit Marco Polo. And in this version, with the travel expanded, I could see owning both games. So for Marco Polo 2 in the service of the con, I'm going to give it a buy. But I think that what I also need to add to this, and I think one of the questions that you even might have, Anthony, is what do I like better? Is it Marco Polo or Marco Polo 2? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, that was about a, exactly what I was about to ask. See, I, you play enough of these games, my friend, and you just pick up on <laughs> <laughs> you pick up on all the things, so to speak. So, you know, it's it's interesting. The Voyages of Marco Polo, or as I keep referring it to, is like the first Marco Polo, was a little tighter as far as the money and the resources, and it was more contract driven. So, for me, I think I still like the Voyages of Marco Polo better. I think that it still just is a step higher for me because the travel was almost a little too loose in this new version and it didn't really feel as engaging as it did in the first version where you really did sweat each and every decision you had to take. Yeah, that's what I've been wondering. You know, I, I got a copy of this in not too long ago. I uh, have not had a chance to get it played yet. I've been pretty busy with life and whatnot. But just sitting it up, running through the rules, listening to your review, I'm like, ah, 
I think my favorite part of Marco Polo is how tight things can be. And then just, and really just in board games in general, it's one of my favorite things is when they say, Mm -hmm. here's a very limited number of resources and here's a limited number of actions. Now do something with that and do it better than other people, you know? Sure. So when they give you more stuff, like the immediate gratification's higher, you're like, oh, I can do all the cool stuff I want to do faster. But often the end result is it's not quite as good. I don't know. I haven't played this yet, so I don't, I guess we'll see what I think. But I think that's one of my favorite parts of Marco Polo is just like you roll your dice. They are what they are. You change them however you can. You use your power to its full potential and you just grind away to try to get what you can, you know? Yeah, I I think that's very much the case. I, I do feel like you can own both these games and enjoy both these games. They did mention in the rule book that you can utilize characters from the other game in here they don't really give they give a little bit but not really a detailed kind of like feel for that like i I think it it was one of those situations where they're like you're gonna do this anyway we don't advise it but you're probably gonna do this anyway so you know if you're gonna drink drink at home kind of deal so i can imagine some weird scenarios kind of popping up you know utilizing the characters from both games but you're not supposed to cross the streams, but every once in a while it, it works out. So yeah, Marco Polo 2 in service of Khan. Khan! Uh, yeah, it's a very good game. <laughs> All right, looking forward to it. All right, so that's everything for our At the Table. Let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about BGA's Games of the Decade. We are taking a way, way look back to the past 10 years, taking a look at those years, the great games from those years, what really stands out as history making, and what years were best for us. What do you think, Anthony? How do you think about the last decade of gaming, so to speak? Well, it's my entire gaming history, so I love it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's interesting to look back through these years because... Going back to 2013, I was actively into games when all those games were released. And then the three years before that, those are games I've a lot of them I've played because they weren't that old at the time. But frequently, the games that were the best for me in any given year aren't necessarily the ones I would consider the best now. They didn't necessarily hold up the best. So it's kind of fun to go back and think, well, what actually stands up? What falls down? What was hype? What actually holds up what's completely out of print and you couldn't play if you wanted to anyways there's a lot of that yeah it was definitely a very good if not a golden age of modern board gaming there's been several great ages of board gaming out there and we just tend to think of like well we played these games and there were just a lot of mass market games but the past decade has some fantastic games so anthony why don't we uh start way back in 2010 and let us know what was great from then Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to list off a handful of games that came out each of these years as we go through them. And these are the games we think are the best from that year. Obviously, we'll throw a few in there. Um, And then we'll pick which ones we we think are the very, very best. So 2010, we could not describe at all if we didn't mention Seven Wonders, Anton Bowser's just absolute all-time great uh, game about just building your best possible civilization with the cards in your hand. Uh, Just absolutely fantastic. Dominant Species also came out that year. One of the all-time great worker placement slash murder your neighbor (laughs) type of games. Hanabi came out that year originally. Twa is another game that's really high on the list for me and one of the all-time great Euros. Rune Wars is a game that we... It's almost a grail game at this point for us, even though I do own a copy somewhere. I just haven't played it in six years. And then one of your all-time favorites, Defenders of the Realm, also came out that year. A couple more games that like the Dice Tower put on their Game of the Year list, Alien Frontiers, Fresco, and Merchants and Marauders, um, which weren't on my list when I built this, but I figured I'd throw them in there because they were hot that year. So Mm -hmm. what do you think? Well, just a shadow, I think you mentioned about you know, Alien Frontiers, I think that was one of the big Kickstarter games way back when, when Kickstarter itself wasn't that big. So I remember that being a present fixture at the time. As you mentioned, there's some really, really kind of crazy big games that really defined my board gaming time. So you mentioned Rune Wars, obviously, 
Defenders of the Realm has been my number one game for several, several years and really has been my top, so to speak, for so many reasons. Dominant Species has had a revival and gets lots and lots of table time and still remains a fantastic game. And it's often, you know, I wouldn't say it's lovingly mocked as far as it's cones and cubes kind of thing. <laughs> yep. So uh, it's still really great to see it out there. I guess for me, as far as looking at the industry for that year, Seven Wonders, it was a game that was heavy enough to play with a lot of different types of gamers. It was a game that could even be played with gateway gamers. It's since become a, you know, a big box store game where you could just pick up Seven Wonders in a Target or a Walmart. It's had numerous expansions over the years and still relevant to today. And, you know, it's one of the games where for a civilization game and, you know, I just picked up a couple recently. You're always looking for that grail civilization game that's just heavy enough that you really get something out of it, but light enough that you can play it Mm -hmm. (laughs) in a a normal amount of time. And, you know, Seven Wonders with these beautiful artwork and boards and building up your civilization and obviously the numerous expansions that came out with this really made it a different type of game like all the other games have had something out there you know they they kind of like they've somewhat have done things you know like friend of the realms has aspects of you know pandemic obviously and rune wars you have dudes on the map all the time hanabi had a really interesting mechanic so to speak but seven wonders kind of defined and i know there have been other games out there but defined drafting and card drafting is such a big thing in board gaming now. And, and a big reason why is because of Seven Wonders. Yeah, absolutely. I can't really argue with that. I mean, if you ask me what my favorite game from this list was, it would probably be Dominant Species. But most important and probably most relevant to my gaming history, it's Seven Wonders. Yep. All right. What about 2011? 2011 was an amazing year for me. Um, <laughs> so some of the games that came out this year were Castles of Burgundy, Mage Knight, Lord of the Rings, the card game. I can't believe that's still around. Um, <laughs> Village, the Summoner Wars Master Set, King of Tokyo, and Risk Legacy, which I don't think anybody realized at the time how important that was, but in retrospect, mm-hmm. it's it's the first Legacy game, right? Yeah. A couple other highlights that I pulled from the list. Eclipse, uh, Core Worlds, Sentinels of the Multiverse, launched in full that year. That's a big one. Mm-hmm. Kingdom Builder, and uh, Eminent Domain. What do you think? Well, this was, as you mentioned, one of those years that was very special because we were at Myriad Games and all these games were really active in the industry. Uh, King of Tokyo had a splash with Richard Garfield actually coming back to board gaming. So from magic fame to a bunch of monsters slapping each other on a King of the Hill situation. (laughs) Yep. You know, Castles of Burgundy has been a modern day classic and it's it's kind of there. Mage Knight, I think you're going to go into quite detail. Um Lord of the Rings as as an early LCG, just owning things, so to speak. Uh, Village has recently gotten a lot of attention because it's been on sale for like the last two or three years at this point. Um, I I don't know. You know, for me, one of the things that really, truly blew me away from an industry point of view was Risk Legacy. Risk Legacy was one of those situations where when you heard about it, it seemed ridiculous that you'd be ripping cards up, putting stickers on the board, creating your own board on top of all things and it was going to be based upon a game you played a thousand times risk so yeah and then recently i just even recommended someone to pick it up because they liked risk but had no idea that risk legacy existed and having played the game it really does have some significant twists and turns that you would never see coming yeah, I mean, that's one I still haven't had a chance to play. I've played a lot of Legacy games since, but I've not played Risk Legacy. For me, from that year, I think the two big ones, well, three, Castles of Burgundy, obviously, but that's sure Euro Pantheon right there. But <laughs> Mage Knight showed what you could do with an open, yes. card-driven, Euro-centric solo system. It's not a solo game originally, but it is the solo game. And it has been the number one solo game for half a decade and will remain so for a while to come um Mm -hmm. lord of the rings the card game similarly showed hey you can make a card game that's like magic but it's cooperative right it's awesome (laughs) and it's got the the lcg elements that you love from game of thrones 
which at the time was just mind blowing and, and so new to the hobby to the point where it's been around now for nine years. So those two really stand out for me as like highlights of the year. All right. What about 2012? All right. So I put this at the top of the list because, of course, I did. Um, War of the Ring, the second edition, <laughs> came out that year. It didn't release that year, but it's my number one game of all time. So I'm going to mention it. Um, the games that did originally come out that year, Terra Mystica, Robinson Crusoe, Android Netrunner, Lords of Waterdeep, the X-Wing uh, flight path system, Legendary, the Marvel card game, Descent, the second edition, uh, Mice and Mystics, and Zombicide. So a lot of stuff that is still around and got a ton of expansions and new content for most of the entire decade. So very impressive uh, what 2012 put in the uh, marketplace for us. All right. I guess for 2012, you mentioned, I mean, these are some of the big games and some of the leader situations, so to speak. And I mean, a really high polish these games. I guess for me, and especially what was really transformative for the industry was the X-Wing flight path system. Now, the flight path system had been out there for some time, but the idea of merging it with the iconic ships from Star Wars and to put together such high quality production on top of everything else, it was really something that was industry changed the industry i remember going to barnes and nobles for their days and they would have x-wing miniatures set up there and tournaments was running all over the place so for that flight pass system kind of dug out revitalized and slapped with a wonderful ip great production and solid gameplay that was the uh the game of the year for me yeah i, th I think i agree i mean it's there's been a lot of imitators, but there's really no X-Wing except for X-Wing 2.0. <laughs> um, uh, I think the other big one for me that year is Mice and Mystics. It showed that you could make a big, high-quality, miniature-based production that's good for kids and adults and families mm -hmm. alike. And all the content that's come from that IP, but also just similar games that are family-friendly, um, show that that really works and people love that. So for me, that those are the two that I took away from 2012. And they're both miniatures-based, so... Not surprising <laughs> that that's all the stuff I bought when I got into the hobby. <laughs> gotcha. All right. What about 2013? 2013, I got a bunch of euros because, yeah. <laughs> um, Concordia, first release of Concordia. Caverna, Viticulture. Um, throwing some miniatures in the middle here. Battalore, second edition. One of my all-time favorites, Spirium. I don't know that it had a huge impact on the hobby, but it has to be on the list if I'm talking about games. <laughs> Nations, uh, Bruges and Rococo. So actually, three of these games are out of print. So I don't know how much of a long term impact they had. But for us personally, they certainly meant a lot. Yeah, I think this was, so to speak, the year of the Euro. And a lot of these games had such a big impact. Bruges is one of my favorite games. Battlelord Second Edition is a love of mine. Viticulture has gained great acclaim. Spirium has found a special home here. But the game that really established itself again as a modern day classic and something that just got endless amounts of play was concordia and there's no surprise it's i mean everything about that game from the production to the innovative mechanics in the game the card play that goes on it's had multiple map expansions it recently got its own kind of like team up type of version with venus and it's a game that really has stand the test of time. I mean, I've I probably have played Concordia more than I would say any other game. And the thing is, I don't own a copy of Concordia. <laughs> so that that goes to say something for sure. Yeah, it's funny. It's a game I have not played a lot, but I do absolutely love it. I have all the stuff for it. Every game here that I just mentioned is fantastic. And I own, I think, all of them. So that goes to show you it was a solid year. <laughs> All right, so what about 2014? 2014, we had the mega, mega launch of Dead of Winter. Uh, we had Orleans, Five Tribes, Roll for the Galaxy. Legendary switched over to the Encounter system with the Alien deck building game. Uh, we had Arcadia Quest hitting the scene for the first time. Splendor opening up the family market again, and then Imperial Settlers. So... A lot of big, heavy, long-tail IPs in that list. Yes, and a lot of games that really had a solid impact. Probably not the 
best year for me to so speak as far as game is concerned i mean arcadia quest is an addiction that i'm still working my myself off of <laughs> dead of winter was a interesting different mechanic with their crossroad system uh yeah um orleans of course wonderful wonderful game but if i'm going to talk about a game that really was significant for the industry that year even though i'm not a fan of the game so to speak it's got to be splendor mm. uh the set collection the minor tableau building it's played everywhere you could pick it up everywhere i think even at this recent pax they had a marvel version of it which was very depressing to see but if you like that game more power to you man and uh yeah that was a thing in 2014 yeah yeah i, I can't argue with that i mean I don't want to agree with you, but I guess I do. Um, <laughs> my favorite game of the year, obviously, is Imperial Settlers. It's one of my top 10 games since then. I absolutely love it. But it's not exactly reinventing board gaming <laughs> as it goes. It just really refines a thing I like a lot. So it's true. Yeah. And Dead of Winter probably had the biggest impact culturally that year, at least in terms of board games. But Splendor mm -hmm. has definitely lasted the test of time. Yeah. I remember that Dead of Winter was on the top of our list for quite some time with so many of our listeners. So. All right, so what about 2015? Big year, big year, man. Really big year. This was a huge year. Um, <laughs> the big, big release of the year was Pandemic Legacy Season 1. And so a full four years later after Risk Legacy, Rob Davio's back. He's got pandem Pandemic now. And it's the Legacy version of this thing. Jumped to number one on BGG almost overnight. Huge, huge game. Um, Blood Rage, which just... Eric Lang was certainly on the map. He was one of the top designers, but this game like solidified him for a lot of people as their favorite designer. Time Stories mm -hmm. showed a really, really innovative take on just campaign style gaming, uh, not necessarily legacy, but games that just follow through and tell a story. Kingdom Death Monster, while not as mainstream as some of the rest of these, has had a huge impact on the hobby. Seven Wonders Duel suddenly becoming the best two-player game I've probably ever made. Um, <laughs> Food Chain Magnate putting Splatter in the general board game conversation. A lot of people have never played or even seen a Splatter game before. Uh, you talked about Marco Polo earlier. The original came out in 2015. And one of my favorite games of all time from Vital Lacerda, The Gallerist, also came out in 2015. So, ton of good stuff. What's really hard about this year, because there's so many significant games here, is which one had the biggest impact in in the industry that year food chain magnet made splatter a game that got to all of the tables and even general gamers were playing it time stories had this really unique mechanic which again it was it was seen as some kind of heresy it was a one and done type of game i remember everyone talking about it saying it was never going to do any good and then it became huge kingdom death monster i remember seeing that way back i guess in the very 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 first kickstarter they had and i said there's something about this and i really really did feel that and if i could have you know put together <laughs> a couple of bucks i would have actually picked it up back in the day oh, wow i mean pandemic legacy was number one blood rage has such a following to it on top of everything else it's really hard to figure out which kind of you know did the most for the industry but i guess if i'm going to play that game so to speak I actually, you know what, I'm going to go with Food Chain Magnet, just because the idea that Splatter was a company that was around forever and had produced these very interesting, super heavy games, and Food Chain Magnet was the one that broke through. And that was very surprising. Even the catch-up mechanic coming out, the new expansion for it's getting so much buzz. And I remember one of our friends, Anthony Chris, he picked up Food Chain Magnet for, like I think it was $150. And he was super happy to have it. We played it. We enjoyed it. And people are still picking it up for 100 bucks or so. So I'm going to give it to Fuche Magnet. Yeah, that's fair. Absolutely. And one I just realized I didn't put on the list was Codenames. So, oh, sure. Yeah. And like that's not really like in our wheelhouse personally, this podcast, but it probably has sold more copies than almost all of these possibly combined. Um, oh, yeah. Sure. This game is a mega, mega, mega hit and has like 45 versions now. But for me, it's probably Pandemic Legacy. I loved it. It's still in my top 100 as a gaming experience. And in terms of impact, every single company tried to follow suit. None of them really did it sure. very well, including Z-Man with Pandemic Legacy Season 2, which is, to all accounts, not that great. But 
this one just showed everybody this can be done. And when it's done properly, it is incredible. So we're still waiting for the next incredible one. <laughs> Hopefully it's coming. Absolutely. All right. So we're going up a year here. 2016. Another really big year. Um, the biggest probably in our number one game that year was Scythe, followed by Terraforming Mars, which is our number two game. Um, also released that year, Star Wars Rebellion, the Arkham Horror card game, A Feast for Odin. Mechs versus Minions was a huge, huge splash fall that year with the, the launch that Riot put together. Inish, Santorini, Captain Sonar was very unique and different and has somehow found a, a life for itself on target shelves everywhere. The Escape Room games blew up that year with Exit the Game. And then King Domino also was another really big one that broke out that year. I guess for me, both personally and for the podcast particularly, I mean, I, I if you go back and you could find the episode where Drew is giving me the hardest time in the world about Scythe and my prediction of how much money it was going to make and that it was going to be the biggest non-IP miniature, whatever I said back in the day, Euro game. And, you know, Stegmeyer had been doing very well up to that point. And to bring something up that was going to be this costly, this involved, and for it to do this good, I think for no other reason than the, the impact it had on Kickstarter to show that how substantially big a game could be that was not an IP game, I'm going with Scythe. Oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, I think Jamie actually posted sometime not too long ago that this game has 300,000 copies in circulation. <laughs> That's insane. It is a $80 Euro game and it has almost half yeah. a million copies out there. That's like on par with a lot of these big box games we're talking about. And it's mm -hmm. just absolutely crazy. I mean, I that game has not stuck with me very much. I've certainly fallen off on it over the years, but in terms of impact, it probably had the biggest exit and all those that seemed like a thing that was sticking around. It's kind of faded a little bit. So I don't know about the long-term impact of that necessarily, um, Terraforming Mars is sticking around. That's certainly a game that has not faded away much, but I don't know that it's had quite the significant impact on the hobby. So I think I have to agree with you on Scythe. All right, so let's get on to 2017, another big year in gaming. Yeah, this is the year of the big old games trying to break free of their genre and try to do something different. So we had Gloomhaven with dungeon crawling, Spirit Island with cooperative games, Seventh Continent also cooperative games, um, and then some of the other just big hits that year, we had Azul, Clans of Caledonia, Anachrony, Lisboa, Too Many Bones, Dinosaur Island, and then the first century release, Spice Road, was also came out in 2017. So lots and lots of big stuff, including a couple of our favorite games of all time on that list. Yeah, this was another big game. This was another top level game as far as board gaming was concerned, where Gloomhaven just kind of exploded. Again, this was you know, obviously a year after Scythe came out. So Gloomhaven was kind of this sleeping giant that no one knew at the time and kind of blew up later. So I want to give it to Gloomhaven, but I feel like it just became more of a thing later. I mean, this was a Kickstarter game, so to speak. Spirit Island obviously had so much different to it as far as being a very, very unique game. But I guess once again, I'm going with games that really broke through the industry and a designer that had so many great games out there, but it was really only until this game came out that really changed the industry and brought heavy quality Euro gaming out there. And that's Lisboa. You know, Vital Acerta was a well-respected designer, but he didn't become a household name until Lisboa came out. Yeah, I mean, I love Lisboa. I don't know about... It's, it's hard to say it had like as big of an impact on the hobby as either Gloomhaven or Spirit Island. Um, obviously, Gloomhaven, like you said, I mean, that one, it originally released like January that year. I got my copy from the first Kickstarter. They ran another Kickstarter mm -hmm. in May, and then it didn't hit everybody's shelves, I think, until October. So it was, it was end of the year mm -hmm. when it really, really, really blew up. Sure. I mean, sometime earlier that year, Tom put it on his top 100 at number one, and I think that really <laughs> drove it home. But uh, Spirit Island, though, for me, is the it's the first co-op game that made me think, wow, I love co-op. Where in the past, I'm like, this is fine. If Even with really good ones, I'm like, this is fine. But Spirit Island, like, this is an amazing puzzle that I absolutely love. It's possible to make a big, heavy co-op. Uh, and so that's the one that really stuck with me from that year. All right. So last up for this year, 2018. 
Yeah, this is just last year. It feels fresh, so maybe not as shiny as previous years, or maybe it just wasn't as strong of a year. I guess we can talk about that. But the big releases were Root, Brass Birmingham, Rising Sun, Teotihuacan, Everdell, Underwater Cities, Chronicles of Crime, and then Welcome to and Ganshon Clever. And then I'm throwing Keyforge in there because of course I am. <laughs> yeah, as you mentioned, Root was the big game th- that year. There's no taking that back as far as it, it became a thing in and of itself. Everdell, with its fantastic production, it really revitalized worker placement games. Underwater Cities offered us a streamlined and really wonderful kind of version of Terraforming Mars. Uh, Keyforge was a thing in and of itself. It's it's kind of strange to say, hey, you know, Keyforge wasn't a thing, but really Keyforge was a pretty big thing. And obviously going back to Brass Birmingham, the idea that this was one of those games that people kind of liked, but just said that to be polite. And Brass Lancashire and Brass Birmingham coming out on Kickstarter and having such a significant impact out the industry was phenomenal. Again, uh, not my game, so to speak, but Keyforge, it was just a phenomenal back then in 2018, still is. And the idea that you do not have to go to a secondary market for this quasi collectible card game that you could pick up a deck for 10 bucks and then played a whole variety of ways was something that was a unique gaming situation for the industry. And uh, Richard Garfield just knocked it out of the park. And who knew this guy had more magic within him? <laughs> oh, man, that's like the nicest thing you've ever said about that game. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can't take it away from it. It's just it it really is, man. I, you know. Yeah, no, 100 percent. Keyforge. I mean, it came out right at the end of 2018. So it's really more defined by 2019 in gaming really more the first half of 2019 but man sure. this is my most played game in the last 12 months for sure mm-hmm. if i was going to pick a game that i thought really just represented 2018 as a year probably root that game had a kickstarter it released and then the buzz made it stronger and it just kept building and kept building and kept building until it won all the awards at the end of the year including my favorite game of the year and now with the new content coming and the you know, updates and expansions that are releasing here in the next month or so, it's really expanding into this big thing. And I think part of that for me is I love asymmetry. I love the idea of like these war anti-insurgency games. Coin games are fun, but they're really hard to learn. They're even harder to teach and they're even harder to get people to play. So Root coming along and taking away all that and just making it more accessible and easy and friendly and cuddly um, really did a lot, at least for me in terms of gaming last year. All right, Anthony, so we've gone through the last decade. Obviously, we're not at 2019 yet. That is our next episode. But what do you feel like was the best year of the decade for board gaming? Yeah, this is hard. I mean, there's so many, so many good games. And every single year that I look at, I'm like, oh, there's two or three in my top 100. There's two or three in my top 100. That one has four in my top 100. Um, But just ignoring that and just looking at the games that have had the biggest impact on me as a gamer i'm gonna go with 2015 the mm-hmm. the legacy release blood rage coming out food chain magnet getting me into splatter games marco polo the gallerist getting me into lacerda this is the year i discovered a lot of designers that are now my favorite designers and mechanics that are now my favorite mechanics so 2015 for me yeah that's really hard to argue with i think 2015 had so many significant releases that Man, I don't know. It it spans so many different genres of board gaming. So many of these different years had a thing, like maybe it was the year of the Euro or it was maybe the year of the gateway game, but there wasn't a lot of years out there that really had such a diversity of different games out there in the industry. I could definitely see you there as far as 2015 is concerned and agree with that as far as like, hey, this kind of did all of the things possible. If I'm going to pick a year that could possibly come up to it, at least a little bit, so to speak, I'm going to go with 2016. Now, the reason why here is 
I, I guess somewhat self-explanatory when, when we're dropping the game. So you have Scythe, you have Terraforming Mars, which just is a phenomenal in, a, in of itself. Star Wars Rebellion. I mean, it did so much of War, what Roar the Ring did, but for a well welcome, you know, two player kind of game. Arkham the Horror, the uh, card game. I didn't see that being, you know, big. Mechs and Minions, totally out of left field. No one saw that coming. The company dropped a heavy production game and it did so well. Santorini was kind of this weird little abstract game that was big on Kickstarter. Got everyone very much excited. And then you had some other party games. Captain Sonar, which is just a huge A-player game and in a very different type of, you know, party game type of experience. You mentioned Exit the Games and also King Domino, which was a nice gateway game for a lot of families to get to the table. So as far as diversity is concerned, but also heavy, heavy hitters, I'm going to go 2016. Yeah, that's probably my runner up, I think. In terms of all these years, yeah. that's my number two if I had to pick one. Absolutely. All right. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is and Chris. this is Anthony. And we'll save you a seat in every decade. to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron, but with better lip syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. <laughs>